This morning, congregation, if you'll take your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Now we're going to be reading from verses 1 through 7 as we continue our Advent series, uh, taking some steps through the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, We stop temporarily at Isaiah 9 this morning. We'll be considering especially verses 6 and 7, but we read beginning at verse 1. And hear now together the reading of the Word of God. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Thus far, our reading from the Word of God this morning. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, many of you know and can testify that the announcements of a birth are oftentimes very exciting. Even the announcement of an expectancy Uh, usually brings great joy and a profound sense of gratitude. And and what we have in Isaiah 9 is basically an announcement of a coming child. But it's much, much more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. It's more than that because of who this child is and of what this child will do. And so, just as a mere announcement of a routine birth, you might say, of a child brings great joy, much, much more, the announcement of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ brought great joy and a sense of holy anticipation to the saints in the Old Testament. And the announcement that a son is born. Ought to bring the church of the New Testament, indeed even us, a sense of great joy and of a profound wonder. What Isaiah does in the prophetic office is he climbs up, figuratively speaking, into the watchtower of hope. And underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he scans the horizon and he sees a coming day in which redemption will come Uh, to the people of Israel, in which redemption will come to the covenant people of Israel, in which the Lord God will stretch out His mighty arm and accomplish all that is necessary for salvation. 
And we now have the opportunity as we continue our Advent series to reflect from a different perspective, from a different angle, these events that have been prophesied having been fulfilled. But we reflect with the same, at least we hope that we reflect with the same sense of awe and of wonder. And so by way of introduction, a question for reflection. Are we still filled with a sense of holy wonder and awe when we consider the reality of the Incarnation? Of the Incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Does the historical fact That the eternal Son of God in the fullness of time was born of a woman and born under the law to accomplish everything that was necessary for our reconciliation with God. Does that glorious truth of the Gospel still cause our spiritual heart to be filled with joy, thankfulness, a profound sense of gratitude? We trust that it does. And to that end also we consider Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. Underneath this theme, a promised son. We want to notice, first of all, that this promised son is a son unto us. And then secondly, a son among us. And then thirdly, a son for us. So Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. And so this theme, a promised son, a son unto us, a son among us, and a son for us. First of all, then, consider briefly... In the words of this text that we have the prophetic revelation of a son unto us by way of a redemptive gift given to a covenant community. Here I would draw your attention to the simple grammar of the text. A son is given. Reflect with me just for a few moments upon those two words. Is given. The emphasis in this text is that of the gracious act of Almighty God. A son is given. The word given emphasizes the undeserved character of this gift. The unmerited character of this gift. You notice Isaiah talks about Israel. That they are people who are walking in darkness. And that of course describes by nature uh, the reality of every One of us. We live in darkness and spiritual darkness by nature, underneath the wrath and the condemnation of God. But to such people, God gives a son. We read also in John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So behind the act of giving this Son, the only motivating factor is the eternal love of God for His elect people. It's not as if you and I earn this gift. It's not as if God looked upon you and I and said, oh yes, these people, they deserve this gift. God so loved the world. Now oftentimes, many times, we can become so concerned explaining what John 3, verse 16 does not mean that we lose a a proper appreciation of what it does mean. That this love, this, this bond of fellowship that was the establishment of the eternal decree of election that flowing out of that, God gave His only begotten Son. 
His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever, rich, poor, Gentile, Jew, free, slave, whoever, but whoever believes. And so there is a comprehensive scope to the Gospel, but also there is an exclusive scope to the Gospel. Anyone who hears these words by any means, whether here in person, or whether through the radio, or whether through the internet, either now or in days or weeks, or perhaps even months to come, whoever, but whoever believes, whoever believes in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ should not perish but have everlasting life. And so there is a call to the exercise of faith along with the promise that if we believe, if we receive this gift in the act of exercise of faith, then there is no condemnation, but rather everlasting life. A son is given. A congregation, this ought to continually humble us. But out of that posture of humility ought to come forth the expression of profound gratitude. We who have been given such a gift freely out of God's love and out of His grace, how can we not show forth fruits of thankfulness in our own life? A Son has been given unto us by a redemptive gift to a covenant community. Uh, Notice again, if you just look at the simple grammar, unto us a Son is given. Now much could be said about the us there. We just note that it speaks of a corporate community, of a corporate community group of persons, individual persons, yet individual persons gathered corporately together unto us. It speaks here of Israel, as we said in verse 1, and also of verse 3. In their sin, in their iniquity, underneath the chastising hand of God, but also as His chosen special people, the remnant of Israel. Luke chapter 2 Uh, Verse 11 reflects in many ways the same emphasis as the angels make known the reality of the Incarnation to shepherds. Shepherds who were part of the community of Israel, but shepherds who would have, according to the social structure of the day, been the despised members of Israel. The angel says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And now, we all come into this congregation as a collective body, a corporate body, but we all come with our unique experiences, even currently within our soul, within our heart. Maybe you come this morning spiritually tired and weary. Maybe you come this morning underneath a profound sense of the conviction of sin. Maybe you come this morning... Uh, with relationships that are fractured and that are even being threatened by being broken. Unto us, a son is given. Not necessarily just to those who have their lives all perfectly organized. Not just those who don't have anything troubling within their soul. Unto a people who walk in darkness unto shepherds, despised and outcast. 
unto the fallen sons and daughters of Adam. Unto us. And perhaps you reflect in our reading of the form of preparation as it reflects the Heidelberg Catechism's threefold structure, what is necessary for us to live and die in the joy of this Christian comfort and confidence? First, that I know how great my sins and my misery. You know that this morning, perhaps, with a profound sense of awareness. Unto us, a son is given. What a reason for wonder. What a reason for awe. What a reason for joy and thanksgiving that we have a promised Son unto us. But not only unto us, but notice also that this promised Son, in our second point, is among us. He's among us by taking our very nature unto Himself and accomplishing a work in our midst. And so, well, you know, in the historic narrative of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ during His public ministry, uh, He was not aloof from the common people. He did not just simply reside in some far-off, distant place, uh, staying isolated in some type of royal palace. Uh, But if you read the uh, public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, you find Him, yes, having His times of reclusion, uh, but for the most part engaged with the, the common people of Israel. You find him uh, talking with the, the average Joe, so to speak, upon the street. Uh, he comes among us, but he does so by taking our very nature upon himself. Uh, with the hypostatic union, uh, the eternal divine nature of the second person of the Trinity, uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit upon the Virgin Mary, assumes A very real human nature, body and soul. And this is one of the points of doctrine that we must, and you'll hear this emphasized also in the form as the elements are distributed, this is one of these points of doctrines that we must understand, not only intellectually, but understanding them intellectually, embrace them spiritually, that we believe, yet any of a shadow of a doubt, that the eternal Son of God, co-equal, co-essential, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, took our human nature, like unto us in all points, with one major exception, one necessary exception, that is that He is without any sin, without any original sin, without any actual sin, so that He can be the perfect sacrificial Lamb but that He took our nature unto Himself. That's why in part you find uh, the statement there in verse 7 that He is mighty God. And if you reflect then also upon what John reveals in the opening account of his Gospel narrative, the Word was God. But the Word became flesh. And that by way of reminder is the wonder of the Incarnation. That the Word became flesh at the person of Jesus Christ. And so there is a remarkable statement here in Scripture. And of course, you could say, well, all statements of Scripture are remarkable. And indeed they are. But if you just look at verse 6, notice how it is put. Unto us a son is given. And his name will be called, among other things, but for now just notice, his name shall be called Mighty God. The child that we see recorded there in the 
narratives of the incarnation, that child that will be wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger is mighty God. Now, boys and girls, you don't remember. I don't think you remember anyways. I know you don't remember. You don't remember being born. You don't remember those first hours. You don't remember those first days. You go home and you ask your mom if you were wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, maybe not exactly like Mary wrapped Jesus in those swaddling clothes, but I well remember uh, the birth of our five children, me and my wife. Now, I had a terribly difficult time wrapping our infant children up uh, in swaddling clothes, in, in a blanket. Mothers seem to have an intuition for this. And, and so my wife would lay out this blanket, and she would lay the child in the blanket, and then pull the blanket this way and tuck it underneath the child, and then up from the bottom. And then, and I had a saying, the child was wrapped up snug as a bug in a rug. And infants, and the mothers and the grandmothers, and the great-grandmothers, you know this, infants typically enjoyed being wrapped up in swaddling clothes. My point is simply that's exactly what Mary did with her child, emphasizing his very real humanity in a position of humiliation. But her child was mighty God. And that's the wonder of the Incarnation, that mighty God is wrapped up in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, a Son among us. Through the Incarnation to accomplish a work among us. We must be very clear. We don't have the time to explain this in all of this detail, but we must be very clear about the why of the Incarnation. Because of course the world is confused, but more and more the church, broadly speaking, is confused. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ come among us to accomplish a work? Well, what was that work? Well, the work, we can say, is the threefold office of prophet and of priest and of king. And the, the names that are given here uh, of wonderful counselor uh, and of mighty God and of everlasting father and prince of peace, uh, they hint, and verse 7 continues to elaborate, they hint upon this threefold office of Jesus Christ as the mediator or as the Messiah or as the anointed one. Why is Jesus Christ among us incarnate to accomplish the prophetic work as He reveals the will of the Father, as He reveals the will of salvation, the way of salvation rather, and not only revealing the way of salvation, but also in His priestly office to accomplish the work that is necessary to be both the, the priest and the sacrifice, to present on the altar uh, that substitutionary atonement that is necessary uh, to provide the basis for the forgiveness of our sins and our then legal acceptance with God. And not only as prophet and as priest, but also as king to establish the kingdom of God, the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of glory. Not only to establish it, but then to maintain it and to increase it and to advance it within the hearts and in the lives of us, those people 
who walked in darkness, but now see a great light underneath the prophetic, priestly, kingly work of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not simply come among us to show us a better way to live and a noble way to die. He did not just simply come among us to motivate us to pursue some type of vague world peace. He did not come among us uh, to set forth the path of some type of evolutionary advancement uh, of the human race. He came among us to reveal the way of salvation and to accomplish the work necessary for that way of salvation and to establish the kingdom of God. And so that brings us into what we consider in our third point, a son for us. A son unto us, a son among us, and a son for us. And this ought to comfort our oftentimes troubled hearts. If the son is for us, the Apostle Paul writes, who can be against us? Now maybe you sense that many are against you. Maybe you look upon the global, the political, or the more local Maybe even you look upon the relational aspects of your life and you say, well, there are many who are against me. And the church, as we'll consider this evening, the church can also say there are many who are against us. The demons and the devils, uh, the powers of this present age, all are against us. But if God is for us, if the Son is for us, then we have a solid reason to have a comfortable confidence in life and in death. And so the Son is for us as the Messiah. As the Messiah, the One who has been appointed and qualified. Appointed by the Father. Qualified by the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work that is necessary to obtain and also to apply salvation. Deliverance from guilt, deliverance from condemnation, but also a restoration into a reconciled relationship with the triune God. The Messiah is for us. And all that He does, yes, Jesus Christ, it is said truly, comes to do the will of the Father, but the will of the Father in relationship to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is to reconcile us to the Father. And so as Jesus Christ accomplishes the will of the Father, He does that for us. And as you look back upon the week gone past and as you anticipate the week that lies ahead, just remember. And remember this also as you, as you embrace the elements of the Lord's Supper and as your senses surround those elements, remember this Gospel truth. That for the people of God, the Son is for us. And so there will be those words that will be spoken. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ was broken unto a complete forgiveness of our sins. The Son is for us. And His blood was shed for a complete remission of sins. The Son is for us. The Son is for us as He establishes His kingdom. What a blessing it is, especially when you consider uh, the political arena of our day and of every single day. 
Verse 7, Of the increase of His government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over His kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Not humanity. Not earthly princes and powers. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will establish this and the government will be upon His shoulder. Perhaps, and I leave you to reflect further upon this in your own individual experience, perhaps part of the reason that we sometimes lack a sense of the experience of peace is because we think the government is upon our shoulders. Or perhaps we think, well, the the government of the kingdom of God is upon the shoulders of the leaders of our age. Perhaps if we think, if only we can advance this political agenda or get these political candidates elected, and I'm not advocating a passivity when it comes to civil involvement, certainly not. But let us never forget that the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, in its establishment, in its maintenance, and in its increase, is firmly fixed upon the shoulders of the Son of God incarnate. And being firmly fixed upon the shoulders of the Son of God incarnate, the kingdom of heaven is absolutely sure and certain it will never pass away. Now, you can study world history, and I hope to some extent that all of our young people and our children do study world history, if for nothing else, to learn that kingdoms of men rise and fall. There are empires uh, who come up and they exercise nearly universal power. But then perhaps 100 or 200 years go by and they are nothing more than a notation in a history book. Where is the kingdom of Egypt? Where is the kingdom of Babylon? Where is the kingdom of Rome? All of these have risen, but also fallen. But you and I can be absolutely certain that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, is without end. And it brings forth a true, lasting, abiding peace. Uh, You could also make a historical survey uh, of all of the different Tactics that humanity has tried to establish peace. However, an individual leader may define peace. Uh, But all of those efforts, while perhaps they brought some temporary measure of peace, have failed. But the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, through His redemptive work, brings about a peace that is sure and is certain and that is everlasting. And that peace, I believe, is most aptly summarized in Romans 5, verse 1. And they're the Christian church. They're the covenant community. They're the people who once sat in darkness, but who saw the great light, the light of the world that shone in the midst of that darkness. They're the the child of God joining with His brothers and sisters in the Christian faith says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as your hand receives the bread and receives the wine, be reminded, everyone who believes has peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ.
Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the work that you have accomplished in your eternal electing love. A work of sending forth a promised Son unto us to labor and to work among us, for us. And as we now transition to the administration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we pray that our senses might be overwhelmed by this testimony. That there is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been accomplished for the forgiveness of our sins and for making us right with You and that we then have peace with You through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Your Son, in whose blessed name we do pray. Amen.